You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. So welcome back, guys, to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with me, Owen Walker. So in this selection of um, podcasts, we are looking at different critical care schemes throughout the world. So last week, we looked at the Harrow system with uh, Steve Rashford. This week, we're looking at the MICA land and flight-based system with Ben Meadley in Ambulance Victoria. Next week, we're looking at the Medic One system in Seattle with Andrew Latimer. And then the week after, we're going to be looking at the British Columbia Emergency Health Service critical care system up in Vancouver with our colleagues up there. So I hope you enjoy this selection of podcasts. We'll be back with season four and we're going to do some more deep dives into different facets of pre-hospital care um, then. But this is just um, a selection, uh, four different podcasts with four different systems across the world uh, based on the critical care that they provide to the community. Hope you enjoy them and we'll be back with more content shortly uh, with uh, within the pre-hospital domain. All right. Thanks, guys. So welcome everybody to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with me, Owen Walker. I'm here today with um, a friend and colleague, uh, Ben Meadley from the MICA uh, system in Ambulance Victoria. Uh, welcome, Ben. Thanks very much, John. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So this is part of a series um, in which we just do a little bit of a deep dive into different uh, critical care systems across the world. Uh, just find out a little bit about their training, about their their exposure, their workload. Um, so, Ben, just just as a, as a starter, um, could you just introduce a little bit of your background and your current posts, mate, if that's OK? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm uh, a paramedic with Ambulance Victoria. I uh, started my career as a, a volunteer paramedic, essentially, uh, in Ambulance Victoria many years ago um, in, the, in the late 90s. Uh, then I moved up to Sydney, worked there for about five years or just short of five years with New South Wales Ambulance, where I did uh, kind of the core part of my, my basic ambulance experience. Uh, I came back uh, to uh, Ambulance Victoria in 2003 uh, and became a microparamedic about 18 months after that. Um, and uh, have been here ever since, uh, mainly working in the kind of metro uh, crit care paramedic area, uh, and then in the last uh, seven years or so, out in, in the regional kind of spaces of Victoria. And uh, I've been, for about the same amount of time uh, since I've been with Ambulance Victoria, I've been teaching into the, the undergraduate program at Monash University for their paramedicine degree. Um, and then for about the last 12 or so years, into the postgraduate program uh, for the aeromedical postgraduate qualifications and uh, and the uh, critical care paramedic qualification as well, um, which we can, I guess, talk about down the track. And uh, so I kind of try and balance my life out between education, research and uh, and clinical practice, which I, I really like that balance at this this point of my life, I think, and, uh, and doing a PhD at Monash concurrently with all that, which is... Uh, yeah, incredibly rewarding and uh, um, I think I'm very lucky to have the career I've had so far. Ben, that's fantastic. Um, sounds like you're a, you're a busy man and uh, quite rightly. So it's, it's, so I, one of the, I guess, fundamentals, which is, which is interesting is just balancing that exposure with, uh, with education and empirical research and evidence base, which is a nice equilibrium to, to have, um, I guess it's, um, it's nice to balance the two. Yeah, look, I, I don't, I don't know that I like. I always saw myself as a person who was going to see their career out working in clinical practice, because uh, I, I really do enjoy, uh, I guess, just caring for people where the opportunity presents itself. I, I really enjoy uh, looking after uh, people when they're they're unwell. You know, you don't wish it upon them, but if uh, if you have to be there when they're unwell, then then I'm happy to kind of lend that hand where I can. Um, but then it seems kind of a bit almost selfish to to gain have the fortune to gain that knowledge and not be able to share it. So therefore, you you enjoy the teaching, and I think I've enjoyed teaching, um, you know, as much as I move through my career because you've got more to share, if that's the way you want to put it. And then, you know, research is kind of something I've I've kind of moved into. Uh, we've, we've been very much on the periphery for most of my career, but moving into a little bit more so uh, these days. So, um, but yeah, it's good to be a kind of multi-trick pony. Yeah. 
Indeed, indeed. So Ben, um, just looking at just looking at a few systems and processes, if that's okay. So just look at the MICA-based system. So for those that might not be familiar with the, even the term MICA, so Mobile Intensive Care Ambulance System or and or paramedic. Um, is it is it okay if you if you could sort of just differentiate maybe the the land based mica from the flight mica, and then just just maybe a little bit of a deep dive into some of the primary and or additional roles that the mica system sees and or does. Yeah, sure. Um, so mica, as you said, mobile intensive care ambulance kind of was born in Melbourne, nineteen seventy one, um, off the back of some of the northern European changes with with pantridge in. Uh, in Ireland and the, the long history of kind of pre-hospital critical care, I guess, um, started with a registrar, a cardiology registrar plus a plus a paramedic running out of a hospital, um, evolved to a, a double paramedic model and has kind of carried on from there since the early 70s. Um, and uh, we've been very fortunate to have a great relationship with medicine uh, as a whole um, to help evolve our system, I guess, is the way we would look at it. Um, and we've kind of worked hand in glove with with medicine, nursing, other allied health services, and and to try and be better at what we do for for nearly fifty years. Uh, so it's a very mature system. Um, the the uh, training uh, has evolved with the, the profession in the sense that it is a a fully postgraduate qualifi- qualification to be a MICA paramedic in Ambulance Victoria. Um, the term intensive care paramedic is kind of all-encompassing or, or critical care paramedic, I guess. Uh, MICA is, is almost like the brand locally, if, if that's a way you want to put it. But it um, it's a system I think that Ambulance Victoria is proud of. It has a long-standing um, history, as I said. There's about, uh, of the 4,500 or so paramedics in Ambulance Victoria, around about five or 600 are MICA paramedics. So um, whatever percentage that is. There's that many, um, and uh, and most of them would be operational uh, in the field, uh, either full or part time. Uh, the system uh, I've spoken about this on a, a number of kind of discussions with people over the years, but you essentially in uh, Australia, which is similar to the UK model now, a minimum requirement of an undergraduate degree for to practice as a registered paramedic in in uh, Australia, uh, followed by. Uh, generally in our service, at least a couple of years of infield practice before you're eligible to then apply for the MICA program. Uh, some do it right on that kind of two years post-qualification mark. Uh, that would be a person with with a good level of talent and, and promise. Um, they go through an endorsement process and some clinical exams and interviews. Uh, and then they get enrolled in a graduate diploma at Monash. Uh, well, it's actually they get enrolled in a master's and they exit at the graduate diploma if that's what they want to do. Um, but Ambulance Victoria will pay for them until the end of the graduate diploma. Uh, and then they can just kind of self-fund the rest of the master's, which is a, another, really only another kind of six months full-time equivalent study. So most people kind of carry it through to the master's level. Uh, so we've got a very professional workforce, um, a, a long history of strong clinical governance, a very close tie-in to pre-hospital and uh, medical research, um, going back a long time, longer than, than my involvement in the system. And then uh, to kind of take the long way around to answer your question, the, the difference, if you like, between the MICA flight paramedics and the MICA road paramedic group has previously been reasonably vast although that gap, I would say, has narrowed quite significantly in the time that I've been a MICA flight paramedic. So I've been uh, flying with uh, Ambulance Victoria for t- uh, 12 years now and I would, it has actually been a reasonably consistent effort to try and minimise the gap between the two skill sets. So you, you might call it a third tier, uh, I guess. Uh, largely a lot of those things, though, in regards to the clinical practice have probably aligned with necessity within the aviation environment um, and, and maybe pioneering a few things, for example, ultrasound or blood administration, finger thoracostomy, those types of things will get pioneered in a, in a small group uh, where there's only uh, 45 out of the, the 600 who, who actually uh, perform that microflight role. So uh, we can train small teams reasonably effectively and efficiently to, and then give them high case exposure to develop a, a skill set 
demonstrate safety under robust clinical governance to then uh, you know, utilise that experience to demonstrate a need for it to be moved to the road, uh, road mica paramedics as well. So um, there is, as I said, that long-standing uh, tie to the medical community who really kind of give us a lot of support in regards to advancing the skill set, but also help identify gaps. Then say, well, there's a gap here, and maybe we should look at X, Y, or Z. Uh, but then you, that usually then ends up linked in with a research project as well to to try and find a, a decent evidence base. Um, and and we're lucky, I think, from a a, a range of uh, points of view that research in our service, because it's longstanding, is reasonably easy to achieve. Uh, the paramedics are used to being uh, investigators by proxy. Um, the system has um, adapted to that those, the research requirements. Um, we've got a long-standing uh, relationship with various ethics committees where they understand what we're doing. Um, they understand the professional group that are performing the research. And we have a dedicated full-time multi-staff research department in the ambulance service headed by a, a full professor uh, of, uh, of epidemiology who, who runs that. So Fantastic. Yeah. And that's fantastic. Again, so, a long answer to a short question. No, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. So it really looks like, you know, there's a distilled small pool of flight microparamedics, you know, 45 to 50, you know, there's 400 to 450 ground micas. And then, like you said, a, a wider service of potentially four to four and a half thousand staff. So it really is yeah. distilling down down that pool. So just, just, just coming in to look at a few different things there, because you said some really interesting things. So I think, you know, quite rightly, the foundation of, of, of practice and or care is is based on empirical research and maybe anecdotal experience. But do you find that a lot of interventions and or diagnostics, which is point of care, ultrasound, blood and a few other things, start with the flight micas and then transcend down to down to the ground parameter ground micas and then and then maybe even out to the, the broader community? Is that is that the kind of the flow of of care of, of, of care and or interventions? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's definitely the case, but it is a two-way relationship. So, uh, and more so as we've become, you know, internationally a more recognised profession. So, within the critical care skill set, that is definitely the case. So, things like, um, uh, oh, let me have a think. So, the, the way we would undertake our RSI, for example, so the introduction of new pharmacologies can easily get trialled in, in in a space where there is high uh, exposure to critical care uh, patients. So, you know, as an example, it's been spoken about ad nauseum across the world, but something like ketamine, for example, was a reasonable departure uh, for induction of anaesthesia in our service, uh, you know, six, seven years ago, whatever it was. Um, but we were able to easily kind of, uh, you know, get a, a strong evidence base for its use or otherwise uh, by introducing it to the RSI uh, um, anesthesia plan for the flight paramedics, and then just to you know analyze prospectively, analyze the data um, or collect the data, sorry, and then analyze the data and uh, and make a decision on whether this is in the patient's best interest, um, and then roll that out to the the wider community. And, and there's a there's a range of things, you know. For example, I mean, I could think of you know CPAP wasn't part of everyday ambulance. Uh, practice and every ambulance in Ambulance Victoria has the, the ability now to, deli to uh, deliver CPAP where appropriate, whereas that would have been a niche skill set previously. So, um, and, and there are a range of things that would flow all the way down. But in saying that, for example, uh, we didn't have IV paracetamol until very recently, and uh, we didn't have as many of those kind of multimodal analgesia options. And, and within our environment, we would kind of be you know, leaning towards maybe a one or two agent approach, maybe three previously, whereas we've actually learned from the wider population um, on how beneficial, a, you know, a multi-agent approach might be, for example. So it is a it is a two-way relationship. But from the critical care skill set, yes, it's, it's very, um, very easy to kind of introduce these skills uh, within reason in, in our group and then and then roll them down uh, as they are deemed appropriate and safe. 
That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. So what I'd like to do, Ben, is look at some of the governance structure around what you do. But just before we do that, I'm just going to sort of tiptoe around and look at, well, look at a few interventions because I did find there's this a little bit of, not disparity, but variation um, in. So, for instance, uh, as, a, as a flight paramedic in the UK, um, across the 10 years in, in uh, London's Air Ambulance, I would it'd be very prescriptive as, as the RSI was being undertaken. It was either 321 or 111. So that would be, uh, that would be at, at three micrograms per kilogram of fentanyl, two milligrams per kilogram of ketamine, one milligram per kilogram of rocuronium. And, and then a 111, if it was, if the patient was, had uh, sort of fragile or frail or um, quite, um, um, poor physiology but um so speaking with steve rashford up in the up in the haru um system they they nuance every 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 rsi so they, they're not as prescriptive at all they don't prescribe to a 321 or a 111 are you, are you, do you nuance the care or do you are, are you quite prescriptive and also a second caveat to that question would be do you share check it's something i find really interesting is um, the Haru guys share their checklists with other paramedics. So when they do come to RSI, all the paramedics are familiar with the with 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 the procedure. So it's almost it's almost drilled into the whole system rather than a tight knit system within the system. But um, how how does it play out with 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 the Mica system? Yeah, sure. So um, I, uh, I'll I'll answer your second question first, and then you'll have to remind me of the first question. So the second question in regards to the checklist, for example, um, I think that historically there was a bit of you know, the cloak and dagger secret squirrel type behavior where, you know, all those, you know, magical fairies, you know, come out of the sky and do their thing and then go away. Um, and we would like to think that we've tried to, uh, to very much put that behind us as a group um, of professionals. So, you know, I was quite, quite involved in the development of the uh, RSI checklist for our service. Uh, I was quite heavily involved in the design of, of version one of that and, and contributed to the ongoing evolution. Um, and one of the key components was the was our uh, wider workforce we refer to as an ALS paramedic or advanced life support paramedic. That, that's the, uh, the wider ambulance paramedic population. And so we, uh, when we were working with the, the group of people to design our checklist for RSI, for example, we found it absolutely imperative to include the roles of those critical paramedics uh, who are absolutely imperative uh, part of that procedure. So every paramedic in Ambulance Victoria has the same checklist for RSI. So it, it is um, it is shared absolutely um, and and more widely than than just our service for anyone who's interested. So uh, that that checklist was um, was specifically developed for the the entirety of the group that might be at that case and and also because it would be when you look uh, you know like you could pick random numbers out of the sky but you know let's say that there's 15 or 1600 rsis being done across the state um per year or whatever and then so you dilute those numbers out and that means that the microflight group do some the micro road do nearly as many and then the als groups do not many so that's, that's, that's the advanced statistical breakdown of it. And um, so it's a rarely performed procedure. So they do need to probably refer to a checklist to see what their role is uh, in that. And as do the, the critical care practitioners in that, in that you know, uh, very complex procedure. So, um, so yeah, absolutely, you know, everyone is included. Um, and and they, that, there's this employability, of course, within how the checklist runs, but generally speaking, you know, the, the people adhere to the roles. Um, we, we've done a lot of education around, uh, there's, there's people who, who would practice today who, who still think that the checklist is not necessarily relevant to their practice. Um, and that's absolutely uh, not unreasonable for people who, who haven't practiced with that kind of, uh, I guess, approach to their, to their craft previously. Uh, but for the most part, I think um, we, we've largely all recognised that something like that is a, a very sensible thing to do. And it's easy for someone like yourself or someone like me who've spent time around, you know, exceptionally experienced pilots and, uh, you know, other aviation personnel in a high-risk environment who've got extensive experience, you know, a, 
the pilots that I've flown with, no doubt the same with you, have done far more flights than I've done RSIs by relativity, but they still run the checklist. So, um, you know, that's if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Fantastic. Um, to answer the second part of your question, um, we uh, we are we are suggestive of of dosing schedules. For example, within RSI, as an as a as an example, so you know to be uh, for there's a range of indications. We have a range of different um, options. This is within um, within where I work. So it may be uh, ketamine or it may be fentanyl and midazolam or it may be propofol or it may be a combination of a range of those. It's generally pretty categorical about how you would approach a group of patients. Um, and the, the dose is, is quite, um, you know, it, it's reasonably pres pres prescriptive. Uh, but I guess the way that our governance system works that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll use an example of a patient where, 1.5 milligrams of ketamine and 1.2 milligrams per kilo, sorry, of, uh, of rock uranium in the indicated drugs. Well, if um, if the patient had had 80 milligrams of ketamine for analgesia prior to their induction and they were well analgesed and, and you know, they only needed the anaesthetic that they need, then we would give them the anaesthetic that they need as opposed to the the 1.5 milligram per kilogram. So um, there is some uh, clinical leeway in that regard to, to make a decision uh, based on sound clinical judgment aligned with a comprehensive patient assessment and the, the treatment plan that's been instituted up until that point. Um, and if somebody was auditing that, um, that job and they saw that you gave less than 1.5 milligrams per kilogram of, um, of ketamine, for example, and you'd previously given 80 milligrams for, for analgesia of ketamine, then they'd possibly not even ask the question. But when they asked the question, they would say, well, why'd you do this? And said, well, they were, they were already asleep uh, before we proceeded with the induction. And uh, they would say, well, that's fair and reasonable. And on we go. So Fantastic. Ben, that's fantastic. So just, just pivoting slightly and looking at, um, at governance uh, and your governance structure, really, because you notioned towards it just then, actually, and, and, you know, a little bit of the reproach that quite rightly and fairly uh, clinicians, fellow colleagues can give uh, each other. So how do you um, dissect cases? Do you, do you do sort of a hot debrief and then a cold debrief or case review, review at, at a separate time? Or how do you, how do you approach it? So I guess I'll take that from the um, the transition from when you are a, um, a advanced life support paramedic in Ambulance Victoria. Um, there's a minimum requirement of audit of uh, the case sheets, let's just call them that, your, your patient care record, but we'll call it a case sheet just for the sake of ease. Um, your case sheet, would I think the, the minimum is a two, two case sheets per month per paramedic, which is an enormous amount of... Uh, uh, work to do, but the clinical support officers and the, and the team managers around Ambulance Victoria would, would perform on those tasks. Um, and the, they have a range of paramedic educators to support that process as well. And so that largely happens. Um, when you move into being a, a ground-based MICA paramedic, there is an expectation and, and it's a known um, change when you transition to that role that every single one of your sheets will be audited, probably by... by a number of people. Now, um, the, uh, the, t the team manager, the manager of the MICA team would, would audit each sheet um, uh, looking for, you know, tips and tricks to, to provide feedback to the individual paramedic. But then on top of that, uh, and that would include, you know, a, a, an NSTEMI or an unstable angina, would all, they would all get audited to the same degree, um, followed by the next level of audit, which we call LOI or limited occurrence screening. And so each of the team managers or the paramedic educator at the, the local microambulance station, and this all applies to the, the air ambulance staff as well, um, they would have a checklist for the, those limited occurrence or fre infrequent occurring skill sets. So uh, tension, pneumothorax, decompression, uh, finger thoracostomy, blood administration, art line insertion, RSI, et cetera, et cetera. So anything that was within that critical care skill set gets an additional layer of audit over the top, um, and then that gets submitted to a central records department. And if there's any processes that fall outside of the realms of normal guideline-based 
uh, practice um, or there's kind of some excep exceptional circumstances, then those cases will go. Um, in, we have a, a proprietary software platform called RiskMan, which is used by the entire health system in, in our state. Um, so the hospitals, everyone uses the exact same system. Um, and that would go into that system via the, the paramedic educator or the team manager and then goes to a central uh, full-time multi-staffed uh, patient review specialist department and then they would they would then put that uh, case through the standard uh, uh, clinical review process. Uh, so we've got a number of colleagues um, who work uh, kind of half-time in that role who, who uh, work as a, either a flight paramedic or a micro-paramedic educator in the other half of their role. So they're all clinically current. Um, they're, they're sharing that role, uh, you know, spending half the time working in clinical practice and then working in, in that over, overseer role of, of uh, patient review specialisation. So, um, and we've, or well, that group, sorry, uh, has spent an immense amount of effort over the last, uh, let's say two to two to three years of trying to remove that punitive nature or the perceived punitive nature of the review process. Um, and, you know, I did a, a very complex case recently and it's gone into that process because th there was some, uh, some practice within that case that was outside uh, of what is written in our, in our clinical practice guideline. Uh, but I have the utmost faith and, and no concern that there's only learning opportunities from that case. And so it's not the case, as you would appreciate, for all practitioners. They don't necessarily feel that way. They may feel threatened, et cetera. Uh, but that, that multi-layered clinical governance is important and it's the only way to ensure that you're, uh, you're providing that high level of patient care and, and safe care as well. That's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's a kind of overview of the system, yeah. Ben, that's absolutely fantastic. So looking at um, the way in which you, I'm going to pan out slightly and look at some of the lessons learned that you've taken from critical care just over the past few years. But just before I do, just looking at the way you train and or share information within the, within the system and, and or service, do you, do, you, do you generally do a lot of sort of high fidelity simulation and or plenary group discussion and or case review? What, is it weighted uh, one way or the other? Look, uh, I, I, um, I wouldn't say we've got a disparate group, if, if, if you like. Victoria, where I live, is a, you know, it's nearly 280,000 square kilometres of state um, with a population of you know, nearly 6 million people kind of spread out over that area, or nearly 7 million people spread out over that area. The vast majority of them, of course, are in the, the major uh, metropolitan centre. Um, so our bases then uh, are then spread across um, that, that area and uh, so you know what I'm looking forward to on the other side of this uh, this kind of COVID crisis if you like is the um, the ability to to be more reliant on the on the technology that that we're using right now and I think all of us would admit that it's been a, a good breakthrough so I would say that um, I, I would probably like more interaction with with other paramedics and we work as a solo paramedic so um, we don't have another paramedic sitting next to us to say what do you think about this or what do you what do you think about that so um uh i, I think if i had a, a shopping list I, I would like a few more thoughts from from my colleagues if you like so they really only see what i get to do on paper um the the road based crews obviously see what i do and um and we, we're not i don't think that intimidating that they couldn't say hey you know maybe you could have done this a little bit better so um more than more than we're largely a group that's open uh, to that, I would hope to think. Uh, however, um, we do uh, use a digital platform, which is called the Air Ambulance Victoria eResource, where we have a, a centralised uh, internal intranet-based system whereby case review only visible to the, the uh, flight staff um, uh, crews or oh, sorry, uh, paramedics will, will write up a, a case debrief where we can uh, freely comment, um, but also locally it's encouraged and expected that each paramedic in the base, the kind of first thing you do before you even get changed, before you come in the door to your uh, to your first day shift is you, you catch up on the sheets from the, the time that you are off. And so um, we don't 
there, there is no, I guess, uh, what's the defensiveness in regards to people reading your own sheets. In, in fact, it is supported since the day you start as a microparamedic and it's an expectation that everyone else would at that, that station or base or whatever it might be would, would read everything that you've done for the last four days and provide feedback. So, you know, what did you think of just one thing? Um, are the common phrases? So Ben, just just looking back at some of your experience now uh, within critical care, um, what's your so, so, some of your sort of take-home lessons and or personal revelations that you've had through being exposed to high acuity patients and or high performing teams really? So both the patient the patient cohort and or how you get the best out of yourself and or others. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been um, kind of exploring this space personally a lot recently and just kind of reflecting on what other people think about this from a range of, you know, business leaders, military, um, healthcare. Um, you know, I've spent, for other reasons, a lot of time driving up and down highways, so a lot of audio books, a lot of podcasts. But um, it's it's interesting, though, when when you look back and listen, well, you listen to these people and the philosophies that they espouse about managing high-performance teams or, or themselves. Um, and for for whatever reason, you know, I can identify and align myself with, with some but not all of those. And there's a lot of areas for improvement. There's absolutely no question. But um, uh, I, I think that um, the, the, the kind of... The, the big things are trying to minimise the way that um, your ego interferes with how you practice. I've spent a lot of time, uh, like as an example, I, I, I like helicopters, but I, I'm not particularly concerned one way or other if tomorrow that turned into a, a magic carpet and, uh, and I, that's what I had to fly around or, or they grounded the entire helicopter service tomorrow and said, you just have to be in a road ambulance, but you just do the same job. Um, that doesn't particularly bother me. Um, it can be interesting at times to work with a range of different people across this environment where, where that is important to, to them. Um, and it can, it can throw some interesting things around. Um, so I think, you know, ego and, and kind of a loss of focus on what, matters is a thing that needs to be managed in in staff uh, especially in our profession because uh it's a dynamic uh visible uh perceivably exciting profession so um it attracts a certain personality type and uh you know i'm, I'm not exclusive from that i've had to mature and evolve over the last you know 22 years a lot uh to to get to the you know where where i feel like i am today um and you know, I learned a famous phrase from an early, uh, you know, mentor that, you know, you kill people with kindness. It's the way uh, that, you know, more so with your, your people you're interacting with um, rather than, uh, rather than you know, try and engage in any kind of, um, you know, ag- aggressive behaviour. I, I, I've kind of lost any real desire to, I was a very competitive athlete uh, when I was a lot younger and a lot of that kind of flowed over into other areas of life. I'm less competitive in that space now and I guess less competitive professionally, I guess, if that's the way, you know, I can say it. But, uh, and I just think, you know, you can you can probably keep a lot of people happy most of the time, especially a lot of these cases. I had a case recently where I, I started to lose uh, a little bit of control um, the same case I was re- referring to, where it was a very dynamic case, and um, and I and I just had to realise that in any any kind of uh, any elevation of the situation beyond where it currently was was only going to have people offside. So I needed I I had to be responsible for my own behaviour and uh, and and just smooth things off, and then I knew that everyone else would be able to come with me. Um, so just kind of engaging people, understanding that people have varying levels of comprehension, uh, capacity, ability, uh, stress resilience, and that that not everyone sees the world the way you do. Um, and I guess that translates to a bit of uh, emotional intelligence and empathy, even within the heat of the, heat of the moment and trying to understand where other people might be coming from and uh, and just working through that at a, at a reasonable pace, at a... At a uh, complex case. Um, I mean, the, the lessons learned are long, 
uh, long and <laughs> complicated less, uh, list, but you know they're probably the ones that are at the front of my mind at the moment. Yeah, I, so just to pick a, pick some of those points, Ben. You know, certainly to your point around de-escalating others and or yourself. And you're right; just it's it becomes less and less, I guess, about you. The 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 more advanced and or the the more in a leadership role, and and exactly to that point of ego, really, of just sort of laying it down. And one of the sort of fundamental lessons I've learned is uh, is exactly that you know failure is a commonplace you can't fix maybe a lot of situations but that they're pretty much predefined so acceptance was is a big part of the role as well and and read and redefining expectations beyond uh, amongst the team for that acceptance that actually although we've done this we've reached the ceiling of care we were never going to be able to fix some of the problems that, that that were in front of our face, but certainly that failure and and laying the ego down. You know, there's, there's been times where I've tried to you know use ultrasound to, to get difficult IV access and or and or without ultrasounds, and then a student right next to me. Cause so I'll, I'll I'll peel away and say actually give 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 the student a, ch- a chance, and then they get the vein. And as long as we've got the vein. <laughs> That's that's yep. that's that's the main thing, you know. As long as we've got the IV access, yep. and and it's it, it's that that's a that's a micro example of of just you know mm. points in which you just it's it's humility is definitely something that has to be. I think your first your first character trait that has that steps forward in these situations because you you these high acuity situations definitely lend themselves to high frequency of failure and just but just by the the sheer fact that that there are difficult situations mm, absolutely and look you know the humility is a um it's an interesting balance i think you know humility i think is is one of the key things i identify when i look at why i became a paramedic because uh you know this is the pre-social media pre uh you know, the pre, pre the world we know now, and and when I saw paramedics, and you know, I was working through my my undergraduate, you know, education was in a different area, and um, and I didn't really know what I was going to do, and when I saw how paramedics carried themselves, uh, just in their the course of their duties, uh, I think that's actually as opposed to the, you know, the the flashbang and the lights and all the rest of it, it was actually the the fact that they just kind of got on with doing or perceivably got on with doing what they were doing without seeking a uh, recognition or, um, or any kind of just, they were just kind of humble and get just getting on with it. They just seemed kind of like the, that would seem like the right thing to do. So I do, do have some, you know, crises of conscience every now and again, when I see various, uh, non humble things, um, you know, I'm probably guilty of them as well, but, uh, you know, you've got to be careful where you throw stones, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I really think as a profession, it's one of the things that's really important. So looking uh, slightly, um, as, as we pivot slightly, Ben, and looking at some of the sort of health and well-being aspects of, of the scheme, just because but by, by sort of default of seeing a lot of high acuity patients and or stressful situations, we've, we've really tried to embed within the critical care scheme in London, sort of a healthy... Uh, mental health and well-being strategy whereby we 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 brief every morning uh, over the phone we we do a lot of um we've got access to counseling services and we um we try and instigate that hot and cold debrief but also dr- really try and deconstruct things before they, they they sort of build up um so to speak is there is there any initiatives that, that, that the mica system and or yourself have orchestrated within within your system just to really tackle the health and well-being piece we have a, uh, a long-established, you know, 30 years or so uh, peer support system whereby there's a bunch of volunteer peers who will get nominated by our central communications uh, centre on an automatic notification for a job code type, if you like, um, under the, the MPDS kind of grid uh, that will identify a case. And then I, I can't tell you exactly how it works physically, but um, there's there's... A, a couple of automatic notifications that mean that you will get a peer follow-up. Um, and I've worked in that role as a, a peer support uh, paramedic for uh, for the last seven years or so, I guess, um, whereby, you know, I'll get a phone call from the coordinator to say that there's been this job, um, can you just call this crew? And 
historically that was kind of a bit of a shotgun approach. Anyone could call anyone. It's a little bit, little bit more targeted these days whereby I would call a, a flight paramedic, um, a, a micro-road paramedic, would call a micro-road paramedic, et cetera, et cetera, so that you're speaking to a, a clinical peer as well as, uh, you know, I guess a, a professional peer in the sense that, uh, you know, a junior paramedic w- was unable unable uh, to offer any kind of clinical insight or or, or feedback or um, even just a, an ear, if you know what I mean. So what what unfortunately that kind of led to, if you had a junior paramedic ring a, a senior flight paramedic, they just go, yeah, I'm good, thanks, click, um, because and and that wasn't an ego thing. It was just a well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the call. I'm okay. Um, However, I can't really explore the case with you because you, you don't, you can't put yourself in my shoes, and vice versa. You know, a senior microflight paramedic becomes quite institutionalised in their uh, in their own world, and, and very difficult for them to speak to a first year graduate paramedic about their experience. You know, uh, starting out with Ambulance Victoria, which for them was thirty years ago. So, um, so it's a two way street. Um, but yeah, look, the program is good. Uh, it goes to another level of uh, professional psych- psychological uh, support, which is called the VACU, the Victorian Ambulance Counselling Unit, and um, that is a formalised system. They do have um, a reactionary strategy for people who uh, you know, want to take that peer support to the next level, uh, but they also have a proactive strategy called the SMART program, which is like a, a mental health checkup that is elective. But a lot of people do... Um, basically, uh, I guess, take advantage of that, and I do certainly. Uh, and, and you might find yourself sitting with a psychologist under this SMART program and Ambulance, Ambulance Victoria, you know, cover all of your costs, it's great. Um, just talking about things that have nothing to do with Ambulance Victoria, which is just a nice outlet. So um, the system is very good. And I would say, you know, again, I've been, uh, I had some, a lot of time off recently doing doing my research, and uh, when I've come back to clinical practice, I've had, you know, as is the the kind of pattern with with paramedics you just get bombarded with these big jobs when you're kind of least expecting them um but you know you you know there's 45 microflight paramedics and 40 text messages later after a case it's like oh how are you going good how did you do a good job or how did that job go whatever so the informal process is is almost as good um and it's a privilege to work with a bunch of people who uh, who really are looking out for each other. So, very much a formal process, but the uh, the old uh, kind of bush telegraph, uh, where the um, the information spreads quickly within the group, uh, and then the support comes, is is almost as reliable. So, it's good. But you know, the uh, that mental health space taken a lot of um, a lot of focus appropriately. Um, you know, my research is looking into the, the other mechanisms kind of physiologically and biologically that can um, kind of support that aspect of your of your health as well. So, Ben, looking at that just for, just for a minute or two, actually, because what I wanted to do is drill down into a little bit, li- little bit of what excites you and or you're passionate about. So looking at your bio just before um, we had this chat and I was looking, you know, I very much like point of care ultrasound. I think it's something that you probably share as well. But but also, I, what I wanted to do is just maybe notion towards or look at the the your PhD project. So, so the physiological and or anatomical aspects of, of 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 the role. Could you just expand on on what you're looking at within your PhD and what 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 that entails? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I initially wanted to do a, a PhD based on our clinical practice, um, and there's just a range of reasons, geographical, uh, you know, personal, and a range of others that. Uh, that was that was a, a bit more difficult than it seems. We do absorb a lot of our research, I guess, from emergency medicine appropriately. Um, um, and I do have a passion for ultrasound. Published a few papers, uh, kind of helped out with the um, with the introduction of ultrasound in our service, uh, and I find it incredibly useful um, and an amazing adjunct to our practice. And yeah, you know, kind of headed down that path, uh, but. You know, I live a long way from the university. I work in a, in a remote area or more remote area of Victoria. I've got a young family and I really need to find something that would carry the passion of a part-time PhD for six years and it's a, an enormous undertaking for me personally. So um, that then ended up kind of tying back to my, my previous, very brief previous career in exercise uh, physiology and, and I've always kind of carried that interest through non-professionally, if that makes sense. I've always kind of stayed tied to that 
uh, area of my life uh, or my my academic life. Um, so I decided to try and combine the two. So how could I use that to help paramedics be better? Um, you know, and of course, there's a lot of anecdote behind the basis of research and uh, I see a lot of um, paramedics who probably end up out of our job sooner than they would probably have liked, whether that be due to fatigue, um, injury, um, inability to manage shift work, a range of other options. Uh, there's also um, an interesting demographic in our MICA flight paramedic group in that uh, the mean age of that group is a about 42. So uh, just because of the minimum requirements from a clinical experience point of view, we have a lot of staff who are in the second half of their career, shall we say, uh, and often that is the case when they start at, in that role. Um, and there's a you know significant search and rescue component of that role as well as the clinical practice. So um, what I wanted to look at was the tasks that that group performed. How did they look physiologically and health-wise? Uh, but also wanted to see... Uh, knowing that paramedics and shift workers um, are at risk of, you know, or increased risk of things like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, a range of cardiometabolic health disorders, well, how soon how soon did that come on? So we did two, we broke the, the larger project into two halves, uh, looking at the health of graduate paramedics in their first year of practice, uh, just finishing that now. Uh, which is looking at uh, biomarkers of health and cardiovascular disease, so lipid profile, glucose, insulin, CRP, et cetera, uh, looking at their uh, their physical activity levels across their, their first year of practice um, and a range of other measures uh, that we're looking at from their self-perceived mental and physical health. Um, and then that kind of then transitions to look at how how the, uh, the senior group of paramedics look in comparison. So... Um, we, we have basically both ends of the career spectrum uh, with with two distinct profiles, which I won't give away the the uh, earlier results. But um, you know, effectively, what what I could say is that um, that senior group has a pretty good health profile given their mean age and, and exposure to shift work, which is on average about twenty two years of of working shift work uh, for the the senior group and for the junior group who, who only just started the job, they probably start to show some changes in their health very early in their career. Um, so why does that senior group look well? Why are we then in the junior group seeing a transition to, to poorer health earlier than we would certainly, well, we don't want it at all, but early? Um, and what lessons can be learned from both group to institute measures to not have what is a fantastic career cost you your health. Um, so it's, it's a very involved project. I've probably inadvertently con collected enough data for two PhDs, but uh, might just keep publishing for a few years after it's done. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic and very valid research, actually, because I think that, uh, you know, the ubiquitous principles around that span all pre-hospital domains. So all all systems and all, all paramedics are subject to shift work, are subject to an attrition of fatigue and mm. and or variable um, levels of exercise or, or, and or nutrition. So I think I think the results will be quite far reaching, Ben, which is uh, which is fantastic. Mm, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But uh, nearly there. I've probably got about five more to, to follow. We uh, had a group of uh, participants in this very early this morning. And uh, yeah, we're nearly there. So it's good. Fantastic. Fantastic. Listen, Ben, I'm mindful I've taken nearly an, an hour of your time. Um, what I would just like to come into land on and just finish on is how have you personally and all the system, microsystem navigators, sort of the current climate really with enclosed spaces, flying patients in, 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 in tight spaces, i.e. the back of helicopters and or otherwise. How have you navigated that? Yeah, well, look, we've been very lucky uh, from the Ambulance Victoria leadership point of view. Uh, the, the leadership has been incredibly strong in regards to the whole COVID response. Uh, uh, it's, been, it's been incredible to watch, actually, to watch this uh, very large single... Um, statewide service mobilise effectively to institute measures to uh, to kind of curb um, the progression. Um, we've been lucky in Australia. Very, uh, well, lucky and lucky by design, I guess. Uh, we've had good leadership uh, politically 
uh, good leadership from the health system and good leadership within our own ambulance service uh, to the point where there was, I think, the second day in a row, uh, no, no cases in Victoria. So um, no new cases, that is. Uh, and, and we've had 19 deaths in the state. So, look, it's been, uh, it's been a, a minor consequence for us, you know, considering... The, the vast tragedies around the world and the, the imposition on everyone's lives, uh, it's quite significant uh, and we can ourselves very lucky here in Australia. Um, we did institute the measures that were necessary. Our, our aviation contractor was uh, excellent in, uh, and they're a very large group. Uh, they're, they're a British uh, group, Babcock. Um, they um, instituted measures immediately for aircraft cleaning uh, that are above and beyond anything we could have expected. Um, the pilots and the crew uh, of our contractors have been uh, incredible. Uh, Ambulance Victoria set incredibly stringent PPE requirements from the get-go, uh, which everyone has abided by. Um, and uh, we've just followed a, a robust procedure under the leadership that's been provided to us. And uh, we've been able to really kind of manage it well, I think. Uh, I, I'm very wary of speaking for the road-based staff who are going to repeated um, cases of respiratory illness uh, and, and, and cases where they would be immensely fatigued about donning and doffing PPE multiple times a day. So I want to pay the utmost respect to the frontline staff um, who, who have worked a lot harder than I have, I'm sure. Um, but we've just kind of carried on and um, we've, we've, our, our workload uh, dropped enormously uh, and uh, there was an anticipation of a major um, ramp up of our critical care transfer. 50% of the work we do is critical care uh, into hospital transfer. So um, we were expecting that to really go through the roof. But uh, look, I did one suspected uh, in, in the in the kind of real crux of the period, one case of suspected that, that turned out not to be. So... Um, so, yeah, look, for us, um, we're, we're hopefully coming through the other side of it and, um, and, and things are starting to normalise for us very much so. So uh, I, I do uh, shout out to you guys over there who are still, you know, fighting hard through it there. But um, I can't really speak to, uh, to, to really working too hard because uh, we've had everything provided to us. Um, we've had a, a very robust set of procedures implemented um, and I have to say that my colleagues and, and all of the paramedics and associated health staff in Victoria have, have worked very hard to, to follow that. Listen, that's fantastic, Ben. I'm really mindful of your time. I really appreciate your perspectives and time today. And just thanks for uh, chatting on the Chris Brock Air podcast. My pleasure. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care podcast on the Medics Academy Network. 